BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's kind of a gray day here in Portland, but boy, was it hot over the weekend. I hope you had a great weekend and uh, your week is off to a good start. There is a pile of news uh, that I want to get to today. White children in New York now dying of coronavirus. Is this going to blow up the GOP's narrative that it's only old people and black people and Hispanics and meatpacking plants? Don't worry, it's all good. You know, the essence of the Republican message these days. The coronavirus was a crisis until April 7th. That was the day that it was widely reported that black people were disproportionately dying from it. And all of a sudden, literally that day, Fox News changed their coverage. And the next day or the next two days, Freedom Works and all these other groups, suddenly it's like, oh, we got to reopen America. You know, the, the murder of this young black man in Georgia. Is, I've just got this huge pile of stuff. But right now, Congressman Ro Khanna is with us to take your calls. We're going to do a national town hall meeting for the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, the guy who represents Silicon Valley, the 17th District of California in the U.S. House of Representatives. His website is Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A dot house dot gov. And you can tweet him at rep as in Representative Roe, R-O-Kana, K-H-A-N-N-A. Congressman Kana, welcome back to the program. What's on your mind? What do you see as the priority of things that we should be paying attention to? What's going on with Congress these days? You know, we're uh, completely focused on the House bill. We may have a vote on it as early as Friday or certainly early next week. And the question is, what's going to be in that bill? I've been pushing for three basic things. First, We need a massive infusion to states and localities. I mean, in my home state of California, $54 billion budget deficit. This is going to mean possible cuts in education, possible cuts in services right at the time that people need it most. It's hard to overstate how devastating it is. And the federal government needs to step up in a big way to make up the gap. Second, we need monthly checks, $2,000 checks to people who can't make the rent, can't make mortgage. And then third, Senator Warren and I have been pushing for an essential workers' bill of rights, which is basically common sense that workers should have protection and safety. But let's see what makes it in into the final version of the bill. Yeah, I just got a note from a friend in Australia. In fact, I'm going to read the letter at at greater length next hour, in which she says that she lives there. She's an American. And her kids live there. And she said that her son was laid off. And so now he's getting $3,000 a month from the government till the crisis is over. You know, it's just very straightforward, very clean, works very well. But I'm hearing that, you know, and I'm seeing in the in the conservative press, particularly in in, in my uh, almost daily emails from FreedomWorks and the Trump campaign and whatnot, that Republicans are going to strongly object to any effort to give average Americans more money. Mitch McConnell has said that his number one priority is making it impossible for American workers and customers to sue companies if they engage in practices that put those people's lives at risk. How are you guys going to deal with this? The first thing to McConnell is to say, well, why don't you have a workers bill of rights then? Okay, if you want to provide a safe harbor for companies, then they have to comply with basic protections. How can you say they can't be sued and then we're not going to have any regulations on how they have to treat workers? So it's a non-starter absent an essential workers' bill of rights to have immunity. The second thing I find so odd is it's almost like McConnell 
either is indifferent to Trump's political fate or doesn't care about the economy. I mean, you would think the incumbent party in the White House would want more stimulus and more aid because every economist understands that's the best shot of keeping the economy from cratering. And the fact that he's not willing to to help states, and it's not just California, I mean, states like Louisiana, some of the battleground states, just shows that either they're so blindly ideological that they're not looking at their own political interests, or McConnell may not care about Trump's fate. I mean, but it's hard to understand. Do you think it's possible there's a third option, and that is that Donald Trump has concluded that the only way he's going to get reelected is if he can get the economy restarted, that restarting the economy will ignite a second wave of the virus. But if he's lucky, that second wave really won't hit badly until after the election. And so if he and McConnell can essentially force, blackmail, bribe, pick your word, these states, including red states, into just going back to life as normal, you know, I mean, completely blowing the doors open and opening all up, that Trump thinks that's his best plan for winning and McConnell seems to be going along with it. Do you think that's possible? I think that's absolutely right, Tom. I think you uh, nailed it in terms of what their motive is. The question, though, is why is he resisting the resources to the states? Because even if they do the economy opening up, and I think they're indifferent to to what this is going to mean in terms of increased death tolls, even if they push this, even if they're kind of hoping that the second wave or death tolls don't come before November, there's still the point that a lot of states are going to be having massive cuts in services, massive cuts in benefits. And I guess Trump has bought into the ideological argument that this is something that's going to only help blue states. But I wonder if they're miscalculating the amount of despair and misery uh, and and damage that is out there and the need for further uh, government response. How do you see this, uh, the public health aspect of this playing out? Do you think that we're ever going to get the kind of testing and contact tracing nationwide that we're seeing has worked so well in New Zealand, Australia, South Korea, Taiwan, the countries that have crushed the virus? I hope so. I mean, I, I, I think that there are a few barriers to it. First, the barrier is that we don't have enough equipment. Uh, we don't have enough of the production for the Abbott tests or for the swabs. And that's why Senator Sanders and I introduced a bill giving resources to get this equipment manufactured. And second, we don't have guidelines. We need clear national guidelines. Yeah, step by step here. Congressman Roke, okay, I'm going to stop talking here. And we've got literally callers from coast to coast ready to, uh, you know, in in the queue to ask Congressman Khanna a wide variety of questions. We'll be back. It's our national town hall meeting with Congressman Ro Khanna, the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. And welcome back. Patrick in Lansing, Michigan. Hey, Patrick, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. I just want to thank Representative Connor for everything he's doing, and I have a very specific question to understand the stimulus bill negotiations on bailing out the post office. I'll be leading a webinar of the League of Women Voters on this, and we want to lobby our delegation in Michigan, Debbie Stabenow, Gary Peters, others, and we'd like to know how you can help us think about lobbying to protect our election in November, the census, all the things the post office does as an essential public good. And how should we understand the negotiations in Congress about that? Let's first get the facts out, which I know you are aware of, that this has nothing to do with federal budgets. I mean, the cost to keep the post office open, about $10 billion, is not a significant cost. The fact is that the requirement on post offices that they have to have their pensions plans accounted for up through 2050-something is an unfair burden on their operating expenses. So this is simply a push for privatization. And I think you have to make it simple for people. I mean, do you really want a world where you're going to have to pay two, three dollars every time you want to send something by mail? Because that's the world of privatization. If we give it, leave it all up to FedEx or UPS, they'll tell you they can't do this. Send a letter across the country for 50 cents. And is that what you really want? Or do you want to continue to be able to mail a letter for 50 cents? And I think we have to get the facts out that this is not a large expenditure and that what this is really about is a move for the Republicans to privatize. They want to privatize everything they can. And that's what this is part of. 
Dave in North Canton, Ohio. Dave, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. My uh, idea is about paying down the debt. It's now at 26 or 27 trillion. Everybody I know wants to pay down the debt. You could be a hero if you propose that. So you could raise about $3 trillion a year in taxes from the rich. That means $1 trillion for the debt for 20 years, $1 trillion to balance the budget for 20 years, and that leaves about less than a trillion for your Christmas tree goodies. So my two questions are, uh, are you brave enough to change the agenda of the Democratic Party to paying down the debt? And number two, can you handle not having enough money to pay for all your Christmas tree goodies? Those are his questions. So, Dave, I think it's a fair question, and I certainly am for raising taxes on those who are well off. But we have to look at the facts. And right now, as Chairman Jerome Powell has said, in a low interest rate environment where you're basically getting this money for very, very low interest rates and in a low inflationary environment, the traditional rules aren't applying. I mean, the, the reality is usually why do deficits matter? Either they cause inflation, your dollars are worth less in purchasing power, that hasn't happened, or they cause a raise in interest rates and crowd out private sector, that hasn't happened because the Chinese and others are continuing to lend with us. So while we have this opportunity, we need to make the investment in our people. And now if interest rates rise or if inflation rises, then we can reevaluate. But right now we have an opportunity to actually push for more money in the pockets of those left behind. Philip in Brookings, South Dakota. You are on the air with Congressman Kana. I heard that the Republicans on the next stimulus bill are going to hold out unless they get a payroll tax cut, which I want. Philip's phone seems to be going flaky, but I think his bottom line is that that payroll tax cut will cut revenues to Social Security, and I think that's the whole point, right? Yes, Tom. And and look, a payroll tax cut is not what we need right now. Anyone who thinks that if you just have a payroll tax cut, that suddenly businesses are going to be able to hire folks are missing the basic issue, which is this is a consumer demand issue. The point is people aren't driving, people aren't going out, people aren't going to restaurants. So if you're a restaurant owner and you have a payroll tax cut, how does that help you if people aren't going to your restaurant? What you need is direct assistance so you can keep people employed so those people are getting their paychecks through the government, as Tom, you mentioned, folks in Australia or other countries are doing. And you need to help households make expenses. But a payroll tax cut may help certain corporations. But anyone who thinks tax cuts is going to lead to employment at a time of a pandemic, this defies common sense. Jay in Asheville, North Carolina, here on the air with Congressman Kana. I understand that there's a law on the books that states, and I'm a little little vague about this, that when there's going to be a possible transition of power in that election year, the current president must share certain types of information, including the other party and with their own party. Do you know anything about that? And if, and if so, do you think this president will uh, abide by that? No, I don't think this president will abide by that. He's shown absolutely no interest to be transparent, no interest or willingness to give us the information or oversight. And it's been just a terrible abuse of the executive branch power. And it's important to realize this. I actually think President Obama made a good point a couple of days ago. I mean, we often say, well, he's just not following norms in how he's governing. But with the decision to let Flynn go and some of the decisions that he's making, it's not just about flouting norms. He's flouting fundamental laws, laws like sharing information with both parties and leaders. He feels a sense of impunity because he's already been impeached. And he says, well, what more can they do to me? Keith in Atlanta, Georgia, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. I am curious about these stimulus packages. It seems that Every time they do one, it seems like the businesses get the most of it. And I understand that businesses have to be, you know, have to have money to pay employees. But it seems like the people who actually pay the taxes are the ones who always get short-shrifted. I share your sense of frustration. There is no doubt to me that benefits have gone disproportionately to corporations, to mid-sized businesses. I think this gets back to Tom's point that the president's looking at this simply through the lens of a political 
politically that, that what's going to get the economy, the stock market to go up by November, what's going to get GDP growth to start reversing its decline. And he's not looking at it as how is this going to hurt working class and middle class families over the long run. But this is our job as Democrats to, to push to make sure in this next stimulus that we are focusing the aid on people who actually need it. Bruce in Columbus, Ohio, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. I'm going to panic about the post office, and what I'd like to see you do to save it is to give them enough money to pay off their line of credit to the Treasury, eliminating Trump and Mnuchin's leverage, give them enough money to get through the crisis, implement postal banking, and probably get rid of that new postmaster general. So if you could comment on those, I'd appreciate it. Thank you. Bruce, I share your concern with the post office. The new postmaster general is a complete non-starter that they've proposed, someone who wants to privatize it. We need to make this a huge priority in, in our push. And again, it has nothing to do with the money. It has everything to do with an ideology. You know, I read a very disturbing article this morning about how related to the efforts to privatize the post office, the Trump administration is using the COVID crisis to basically engage in deregulation on environmental policies, going back to the pre-Nixon era. So they have a right-wing agenda that they're trying to get through during this crisis, and we need to stop it. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Omar in Herndon, Virginia, you are on the air with Congressman Connor. Tom, thank you so much for this platform. Mr. O'Connor, thank you so much for being on the air. If you ever get a chance, Mr. O'Connor, remind the Republican that the post office is in the Constitution. It's right after the armed services and it's before the penalty for uh, uh, counterfeiting. So remind him of that. Um, my question to you, um, I'm seeing a, a trend that is very disturbing. A lot of these companies, these corporations, are taking advantage of this pandemic and they're laying off people who want to unionize. Can Congress do anything to uh, protect people that who originally had a petition to unionize and now being laid off? Omar, I appreciate that. That's exactly what Elizabeth Warren and my central worker, Bill of Rights, uh, does. If you look at that, we have a provision that stands up for essential workers' bargaining rights. We have provisions that prevent retaliation uh, for workers who speak out or who organize. Uh, and it's in response to what you're talking about, the employers cracking down on people who are engaged in petitions. So please take a look at what we're proposing on our essential workers' bill of rights, and we're really pushing for that to be part of the next stimulus. Ed in Belfair, Washington, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Representative Connor. My question is about the bills that the Democratic Party and the House have passed and have sent on to the Republican-controlled Senate to Mitch McConnell's desk. I was wondering how many bills have been done by the, the working party, the Democratic Party, to the, the lazy party, the Republican Party, who doesn't do their job in the Senate. Can you tell me exactly how many bills they haven't talked about, debated, marked up, or put a vote to? Thank you. I like that framing, uh, the, the working party versus the lazy party. I don't have an exact number. I know it was over 200 at, at, at one point, and I'm sure that number has uh, gone up uh, even now, but it's been on everything from uh, protecting uh, the environment to uh, sensible gun violence legislation to creating jobs to vote by mail. Uh, to putting more money in the pockets of working families, to expanding health care. Uh, I mean, we have been very, very prolific in the House, and it's going to die uh, not just at the White House, but as you point out, at uh, Mitch McConnell's desk. So I appreciate your bringing that up. David in Spotswood, New Jersey. You are on the air, David. The Republicans, or actually the president, wants to have a paid tax holiday on, on Social Security tax on the employee side which would ultimately weaken Social Security and, and maybe lead to its privatization earlier. I would like to know if you would consider, as a counteroffer to the Republicans, now the Social Security tax is a separate tax from the general fund, um, and it's a, ta it's a tax on labor. Instead of having it be a tax on labor, say, fine, we'll give, we'll give you your, um, your reprieve, we'll give you what you want. However, as a counteroffer, we, we'd like to move the Social Security tax to the general fund. In other words, it's just taken out of general income taxes and paid out from there. My concern with moving around on Social Security is I'm sure that the Republicans would then use that to have cuts and not to have it guaranteed. So what I'd like to see is 
the scrapping of the payroll tax cap so that wealthier individuals are paying uh, into it more and, and not the regressive tax that it is. And, you know, I'm open at times to looking at a payroll tax cut in, in times of recession. Uh, the problem here is that I just don't think, as I mentioned earlier, that it will solve the issue because I don't think the issue here is that uh, you need to provide more incentive to, to people to hire uh, as much as that you need to increase consumer demand. And the way to increase consumer demand is directly to put money into the pockets of consumers. Barbara in Chicago Heights, Illinois, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. I'm a little frustrated, but my question is, uh, what can we do? We have people that are dying every day to the COVID-19, and it just seems like they're just an afterthought. What can we do in real time to honor them? I mean, I don't see state flags being flown at half staff. That would be one way to acknowledge that we've got people that are dying every day. Um, I don't know. Can we have church bells ringing at the same time every day? What can we do? I just don't think it, it makes sense just to let them die. And we only work, maybe we don't think about them at all until this whole thing is over with. Barbara, it's a profound question, and it's a, it's a deep question. I think one of the, the real tragedies is that people who have uh, died uh, and, and don't have anyone at their funerals, don't have anyone uh, at their bedsides, and this isn't just uh, people who have died of COVID-19. I mean, I, we've had uh, people I know who have uh, passed away from other conditions, but uh, there's no uh, ability to have the appropriate way of honoring uh, those who pass. And I, I think your suggestions are, are good ones that communities can do, with, and uh, whether it's uh, flags at half-mass or whether it's faith communities coming together. Uh, but I, I will give it more thought if, if, if Congress can do anything. I I certainly think you raise a very uh, important issue. Jordan in Stone Mountain, Georgia. You're on the air with Congressman Kana. What can we do to strengthen unions? I'm a part of the NLAC. I'm a letter carrier with the postal, um, with the post office. And it, should be, it, it shouldn't matter who the president is going to be or who the postmaster general is if we have a strong union that can fight for us. And I just wanted to know what we can do to strengthen unions across the country, but specifically the post office at the moment. Jordan, uh, I appreciate that. Uh, I would recommend two two things that the Congress should pass. First, uh, Mark Pocan is the chair of the Progressive Caucus. I know he's a guest on this show often. He has the Workplace Democracy Act, which would allow uh, unionization in a much easier in a much easier way. It would allow car check where. Uh, unions could be formed and uh, with uh, people uh, just checking off a card, not requiring the uh, counter union campaigns. It would give uh, unions greater bargaining rights. It would strengthen uh, uh, them and enable to, to stand up to retaliation. And then Senator Warren and I, in our uh, Workers' Bill of Rights, also provide for provisions to, to strengthen collective bargaining. But you're absolutely right that the unions have been the counterweight usually. Uh, to abuses in in the the workplace, uh, and we need to figure out how we can can strengthen them. Sophie in New York City, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. Uh, thanks, Tom. First, I would like to shout uh, to Tom Hartman, who has given a great encouragement and empowerment to uh, our favorite senator Bernie Sanders for the, the longest uh, I remember in, in New York. Um, uh, law school. Uh, you came once and you gave us such a, a great uh, uh, discourse about him, but you have given a three-hour brunch show uh, every Friday, and I had a hard time concentrating on my job. So I just want to thank you. You are the one who empowered this movement, Tom Hartman. And secondly, you, uh, the question is addressed to the congressman, Rakan. Um, I wish you have prioritized the direct assistance to the African-American community, uh, which are disproportionately uh, hurt by everything, structural problems, and the undocumented, the Native Americans, the poor white majority in the Midwest, the veterans, uh, which we have one every six uh, people are uh, homeless, and the unemployed. Um, so uh, is there anything that you could do to galvanize this movement also? Because at the moment, uh, the post office 
would be um, <laughs> in the middle of crunching um, or destroying it or privatizing it. We have discussed this many, many times with Tom Hartman. And um, they are the one that we have to use this for uh, voting through mails. How are we going to save the post office? Sophie, thank you. I, uh, let me first echo that Tom Hartman was absolutely essential to the Sanders movement. I went to every state, the early states, and most of the states Sanders was in, and every place I went, people said, look, I heard about Bernie Sanders or policies first on Tom Hartman. So uh, I appreciate your mentioning that. On your broader point, you're absolutely right. We have to be focused on uh, African-American uh, communities, the health care infrastructure, which they haven't had, the essential worker bill of rights. I mean, more only less than 20 percent of black and Hispanic Americans are working remotely. They're the ones who are most of the essential workers. We need to protect them. We need to provide more cash assistance. Uh, and we need to do better on broadband. I mean, a lot of them aren't being able to have their kids educated. So there's a whole set of disparate impacts that we need to address. Don in Sheridan, Iowa. You're on the air with Congressman Kana. What I was wanting to know is, is if we went to one-payer health care, how would that affect nursing homes, which I think is such a crime, the amount of money that people, you know, pretty like where I'm at, 60000 a year, and where my mom was, 102 and that's just common price. Anyway, how, what I was wanting to know is how would that be covered? Thank you. I'll take it offline. Bye. Thank you, Don. I think the Medicare for all and a single payer would have uh, long-term care covered. So right now we don't have uh, long-term care covered. And uh, people have to almost go bankrupt for Medicaid to, to, to set in. So if you had long-term care covered, uh, you, you would then be able to drive the negotiation because there would be uh, other uh, facilities that would come up that would accept the Medicare rates. Uh, and people would be choosing them and put a lot of pressure on the private ones to uh, either lower their rates uh, or uh, they wouldn't get the business. So I think it would do a tremendous amount to create more safety uh, for long-term care for seniors uh, and to lower costs. Alfred in Miami, Florida, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. Everything I've been reading is that we're in a major demand destruction right now. I know there's both sides, supply and demand. But I, I guess corporate America would be really frightened, you know, to be starting to look at their numbers seriously dropping off as we see unemployment reaching epic levels. I wonder what are the thoughts of universal basic income really being a driver to kind of fill this gap? Because I still don't see a lot of serious conversation around it, yet I think a lot of people are starting to understand this is really going to have to be a major possibility to keep the economy somewhat in a normal stage. Alfred, I completely agree with you. This is why Kim Ryan and I, from the beginning, have been pushing for $2,000 monthly checks that uh, we have to get pe money into the people uh, who will spend it. That that's what the, This is a crisis of uh, consumer confidence, of consumer demand. And then until the crisis is continuing, uh, we need to get money into the to the hands of those who will buy things and spend, spend it. Uh, so I, I agree with you. The speaker has said now that she's open to it. Uh, let's see what makes it into the House bill and if we have some monthly stimulus uh, as part of that. Robbie in Portland, Oregon. I was wondering basically what the holdup is on voting for years and Representative Ryan's bill is in the House and, and assuming that if it did get voted on it passed, what you think the likelihood that Mitch McConnell would even allow there to be a vote on it in the Senate? I think it's an uphill battle with Mitch McConnell. The, the, the um pushback we get from centrist and moderate Democrats is the cost. I mean, uh, this is going to cost hundreds of billions of dollars per month that we do it. Our view is in a low interest rate environment and in low inflationary environment, this is where the money ought to be going. This is actually going to help reduce unemployment and ultimately make more revenue come into the federal government. But that's the opposition that we've gotten. And you know, McConnell, uh, again, uh, concerned with deficits. But the fact is that I think people should listen to Jerome Powell. They don't have to listen to Paul Krugman or Joe Stiglitz. They can listen to Powell. Powell is saying this is a time we need more investment in our economy. Jeff in San Francisco. I guess Joe Biden presidency is going to be a bridge. And what's the most we could ask for out of the bridge? Would you say we could get at least $15 an hour and Medicare lowered to 50 he offered 60, but can we go to 50? 
I appreciate you saying that, Jeff. In fact, I, there was some article where I was quoted saying kind of calls Biden a bridge to a progressive future. And it was a mixed reaction from progressives and candor. But uh, my point is, the first thing is to stop the harm. I mean, the uh, reality is, if you have a Supreme Court that is stacked with two, three more conservative justices, we're going to have a court that would strike down Medicare for all, that would strike down the wealth tax, that would strike down most expansions of government. And then, as I alluded to, I mean, you've got Trump, who's uh, cutting almost every environmental regulation, who wants us to go back to pre-Nixon levels. They're cutting regulations on fossil fuel efficiency. They're cutting it on uh, regulations on liquefied gas. I mean, the list goes on. So I think the first thing is Joe Biden will stop the harm. Then the $15 an hour, I think, is where we can get get, uh, do something. And then Biden has a pretty good agenda when it comes to unions and and labor issues. And I think we can make progress there. Jenny in Miami Beach, Florida, you're on the earth. Congressman Khanna. I live in the state of Florida. My husband and I have both applied for unemployment. We haven't received any of the stimulus benefits and we haven't received any sort of unemployment. And we've been without an income for about two months now as we live in Miami Beach. What can Congress do in order to force states like Florida? I understand their unemployment system is broken, but what can states do to force states to give us the benefits that Congress and Senate has already approved for us? Well, Jenny, first, I'm very sorry to hear about your situation, and I'm sure it's very hard, and it shouldn't be that way. When Congress has passed unemployment benefits, the fact that two months into this, you're still, you still haven't gotten it, you still haven't gotten stimulus checks, is outrageous. The first thing I would say is please contact your member of Congress they may be able to help you uh, get through the bureaucracy to get these resources. Uh, but it, as you point out, I mean, it's partly the blame of the state system in, in Florida, which was defunded, which uh, was designed to discourage people from getting unemployment uh, benefits. Uh, and it's partly the uh, fault of our federal government for not figuring out the technology that can get money out much faster. I mean, why they didn't engage experts from Stripe and Square we're willing to do it pro bono to get this money out is a dereliction. So contact your member of Congress. I apologize you're in this position and we'll do everything we can to continue to push for this money to get out. I'm curious your thoughts about where we should be focusing our attention and our activism over the course of the next week or two. Till we next hear from you. Well, Tom, I think all the activism right now needs to be on what's going to be in that House bill, which we could vote as soon as Friday, if not early next week. Having been privileged to do your town hall now a few weeks in a row, I understand that many of your callers, many of your listeners are understandably frustrated that Congress has appropriated too much money that's gone to mid-sized businesses, large businesses, not enough direct aid to people, not enough aid to disadvantaged minority communities. And this is the time to push to make it clear what leadership should include in that final package. Do you see any, any way to put any kind of pressure on the Senate? The more progressive bill we can get in the House, the stronger that bill, the better chances we have of getting leverage in negotiations with the Senate. But the first step is to have as progressive a bill come out of the House. That makes sense. That makes perfect sense. Congressman, thanks so much for dropping by. Really appreciate it. Great talk. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Richard in Los Angeles. Hey, Richard, what's up? Mike Pence says he would welcome Mike Flynn back into the administration. Can Mike Flynn get a a clearance to perform his job after he's pleaded guilty he can get the he can get the clearance the same way he got the clearance before you'll recall back in uh, december the obama administration declined to clear mike flynn and part of that was that at that point when they were doing the clearance process that's when they discovered that he'd taken a half a million dollars from erdogan to lobby on behalf of uh, turkey while he was, you know, inside the Trump campaign and was becoming the, the, the Trump national security advisor. And so, you know, the, the official channels of government said, no, we're not going to give him a security clearance. Trump overrode those just like he did for Kushner, just like he did for his wife, his daughter. of uh, Oh, Ivanka. yeah. Um, so, yep. uh, you know, yeah, there's no doubt in my mind that Trump will simply install him. He doesn't care if people who are traitors are in his administration. I mean, wow. so, unfortunately, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I got to move along. But Richard, thanks for the call. Yeah, good to hear from you. Dennis in Shorewood, Illinois. Hey, Dennis, what's up? Oh, hi, Tom. Well, I wanted to share something with you. I didn't know if you're aware of this or not, but the way the stimulus money is being distributed is so unfair. I can't believe it. 
I'll give you two case examples so you can see the difference. My wife and I <clears throat> got a check. We didn't need it. Absolutely, positively, unequivocally didn't need it. We exceeded that 150000 <clears throat> for our income. So I didn't expect mm-hmm. to get anything. Instead, I got a check for over 1200 okay, because they prorated, okay, instead of 2400 My son, who was uh, unemployed for about four months, got a job as a truck driver, been working about two months. He got zero. Uh, They're putting out bulletins to all the trucking, you know, all the companies that says that the truck drivers are gainfully employed and therefore they are exempt from and not entitled to any of the stimulus money. What the hell is that? You know, they treat them like the meatpacking people, you know? Like, yep. oh, well, these are just the lowly, uneducated truck drivers. They're just This is why Trump is, this week, yeah, Trump is letting the uh, his uh, emergency order expire, number one. In fact, I think he has let it expire. I think it expired uh, at the end of last week. I could be wrong, but it's right, right around now. And number two, this is why you have the governors of a bunch of red states saying, we are rescinding all our you-can't-go-to-work orders. And the reason why is so that if people are, don't want to go to work because they're afraid of dying, they mm-hmm. no longer qualify for unemployment benefits. This mm-hmm. is all about the unemployment benefits because employers, at the end of the day, have to pay for those unemployment benefits. As an employer, if I have a bunch of employees who ding me on unemployment, who go on unemployment, they raise my yeah. unemployment taxes. They're doing that to the people That's the game. so they don't go unemployed. But my son is employed, and they said, well, because the truck drivers are gainfully employed, they don't get anything. Where my wife right. over $1,200. Right. Yeah. Amazing. Dennis, thanks for the call. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Tom Harbin here with you, Dave, in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's on your mind today? Hey, not too much, Tom. Hey, I think I've discovered your blind spot and why you can't see the Republicans' plan. But before I get to that, I just want to say I was reading an article over the weekend about how the Chinese Navy, now this was a pro-Beijing website, okay, a pro-Beijing article, how it is inevitable that they will have a nuclear-powered fast-attack submarine sometime in the near future, the Type 93D, okay? I also read in a Forbes article how they're expanding their naval base in Djibouti, which is seven miles away from our Camp uh, Lemonier, all right, our Camp Lemonier. They, you know, they anglicize it. But by the way, we have, we have a big base seven miles away, all right, in Djibouti as well. Hmm. 
And also, this is a, two things I've noticed with the DNI. Okay, one was with Radcliffe. The Director of National Intelligence. The, yes, and Grinnell. Okay. Now, Grinnell reminds me of the German ambassador to France, von Rath, Ernst, Ernst von Rath. Okay, now, and the reason why I say that is because Grinnell's a Republican and he's, he's gay. Okay, but Grinnell also said that uh, Donald Trump, his short time as DNI, Donald Trump had no idea that this COVID thing was coming, this coronavirus pandemic was coming. That is a blatant lie. Okay, Von Rath, who was killed by, you know, was the reason, his execution was the reason uh, Hitler did Kristallnacht, right? Von Rath said that the, he abhorred the, Jew, the, 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 the discrimination against the Jewish people, but it was the will of the German people. All right. Now, what I'm saying here is Republicans, when they tell you something, you've got to believe it and you cannot give them credit. All right. Like, for instance, when Rand Paul says that the Civil Rights Act should be repealed, you might be thinking, no, he doesn't really mean that. Or Puzder. No, he does mean uh, you know, that. The, OK, well, and it's he has always meant that his father has been saying that for 40 years. Okay, Republicans believe now. Now let's fast forward to the 21st century and right now. Just like back in World War II, Wendell Wilkie, he said that look, uh, German internal affairs are are their internal affairs, and the Republican Party was these non-interventionists, right? And there was a big right. Well, plus you had Lindbergh and the America First movement going there too. It well, wasn't Wendell, just not interventionist. Uh, it was, you know, try, it was Hitler is upholding American values and holding back communist aggression from Russia. That, that, you know, that was the Lindbergh pitch. And Wilkie was dancing right up around the edge of that. Well, do you, you remember in the big philosophical debate, Wilkie ended up, you know, um, he said, look, FDR is right. I'm joining the FDR administration. OK, this is I don't know if we're going to get to that point. But in the 21st century, these Republicans believe racism doesn't exist. They believe authoritarianism is the is the is the um, business of these foreign countries and they don't want involved. But things are happening, you know, and they're, and they're, like Trump, for instance, he's defunding the WHO because the WHO does not do America's bidding. Right? That is all philosophical. All right. And what they're doing well, is they're also the WHO the is 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 part of the United Nations. And Trump and his buddies want to do everything they can to destroy the United Nations. Well, and you had uh, Secretary of State Pompeo saying that this was a bioweapon. Look, I was in Iraq on the ground. Remember when, when uh, Colin Powell said it, uh, Iraq was making bioweapons? Those were cisterns. And there's cisterns all over the Middle East. Cisterns is like a big mm -hmm. cultural thing, okay, for water. Colin Powell, the only difference between Powell and Pompeo is Powell said, look, I am not going to have anyone lie for me. I am gonna, if I'm going to tell lies that came from Cheney, I'm going to do it on my own two feet. All right. That's the only difference. What you have is uh, these Republicans are pushing um, a, a militarism against um, it, while at the same time they don't really mind authoritarianism, obviously, but they're pushing a militancy against these these other countries that is completely based in emotion. They are trying to do the same thing to China which is a huge, vastly powerful country that they did to Saddam Hussein, who was a rinky-dink 10 despot, all right? It's yeah. not going to work. Yeah, and, and Trump is trying to do this for political purposes. I mean, you know, he, he, he gets it, uh, Dave. You know, he absolutely gets it that you've got to have an enemy. I mean, that, that's just all he's doing. Dave, thanks for the call. Brenda in Lawrenceville, Georgia. Hey, Brenda, what's up? Yes, Tom, I was going to ask your opinion on something. I believe that if when congressmen talk about American people, instead of saying average, ordinary, that they just had to say American people instead of putting us in little categories because the American part unites us. Even if you said an American Republican or American Democrat, it still gets in their psyche that they're part of us. Otherwise, you know, humanity hasn't been working. But if, if we we stop having them refer to us as average and ordinary. It's like we don't understand, we're not capable of understanding, and that we don't mean the same value that they do. Well, I think that average and ordinary Americans are phrases that are used to describe white people in the Midwest. This is, this is code the, the Republicans use to say that, you know, we're gonna, ha we're gonna do something to help ordinary average Americans. What they're saying is we're gonna help all white people. 
Well, if if they had to say, well, I won't say they have to, but say even if Democrats said it, or when people come on your program and talk about it, they see the American mm-hmm. people. It doesn't divide us up as much as, you know, the middle of the state, the high education, the low education. It's still something that is a common bond with us through which we are the American people and we pay for their tax. You know, with our taxes, we pay for their salaries. Mm-hmm. That makes sense? Yeah. yeah, it does. And and they're supposed to represent all of us. We the people. I suppose technically it had an asterisk at the time, but today it shouldn't have one. Brenda, thank you for the call. Well said. It shouldn't have an asterisk and we should be all talking about we the people. Although I gotta say, you know, this this average American or whatever, it's a, I certainly it's a phrase that I've used a, a number of times too, without in well, God only knows at some level. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Call 202-808-9925. It's like all these kind of uh, racist and racial subtexts just kind of can can sneak up on you. This is one of the more important stories that we're looking at here. Ahmad Arbery's 26th birthday would have been last Friday. That would have been his 26th birthday. He was killed on February 23rd, 2020. And so people are jogging 2.23 miles, 223, February 23rd, in memory of him. I found this post over on Facebook from a guy who is running for a sheriff's post in Cobb County. I used to live in Cobb County. Louise and I lived in Marietta, Georgia, and uh, Newt Gingrich represented us. And James Herndon is running for sheriff of Cobb County. And I just want to share with you what he wrote about this. He says, I bring this from the perspective of a man wanting to be your next sheriff, a man with years of experience in CSI, and actually personally arresting dozens of men for murder. What we have in this case is almost identical to the shooting of Trayvon Martin by George Zimmerman, in Florida. And then he goes through the details and he says, you see, I'm from South Georgia myself. And I recognize something in that video that most people likely will not. When you see a truck parked in the middle of the road with an armed man standing on top of his toolbox or in the bed of the truck with a gun, it indicates to me that he's hunting an animal that is running. This is a common technique used to hunt running game in the Georgia flatwall woods. He points out it's actually illegal, but it's very common. He said deer hunters in southern Georgia often use dogs to chase deer through the forest until the deer pop out on the road, exhausted with limited physical ability and clouded mental ability as they run to exhaustion before the hunter kills the deer with his gun. The hunter stands on the truck toolbox or on the truck bed to obtain a commanding view of the area to easily spot his prey. He said, what I, when I saw the man on the truck and the other man with a shotgun, I knew what was in store for Ahmad. This was not something he would survive. They did not see him as their fellow man. They saw him as something to hunt down, using tactics they used to hunt wild game in the South Georgia flatwoods. And he points out... Aubrey ran into this truck because the truck, they knew which direction he was running, and so they cut him off. They got ahead of him on the road, which is what you do when you're flushing game out to illegally shoot them from the back of your truck on the road. And this, this uh, sheriff candidate, this uh, James Herden, he says, being the hunters, I believe they are, they stated they decided to cut him off on another street to confront him as their experience as hunters allowed them to calculate his path for his attempted escape. And as Ahmad attempted to run around the truck, the shooter gets out of his vehicle armed with a shotgun. I believe the very first shot hit him in the right side of his chest. Then he goes through the details and it gets pretty gory there. And then the district attorney, George Barnhill, the district attorney says, "Uh, you know, nothing to see here, basically. He wrote to a Glynn County police captain in a three-page letter, It appears Travis McMichael, Greg McMichael, and William Bryan were following in hot pursuit a burglary suspect with solid first-hand probable cause. Given the fact that Arbery initiated the fight 
At the point, Arbery grabbed the shotgun that Travis Michael McMichael was holding. Under Georgia law, McMichael was allowed to use deadly force to protect himself. Uh, now, Barnhill, it turns out, has a rather sketchy background in, in, this, in this regard. And uh, I'm, I'm looking for the details here, but anyhow, this, this is, uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm sorry, I haven't marked that story up at the level, at the granular level that I need to share it with you. But basically, you know, the bottom line here, these guys were out hunting. They saw this guy running by, they saw him checking out an empty house. No, he didn't take anything from it. Went inside and looked around. I, I've done that. Hey, they're building a house. I wonder what it looks like. And then he's running down. He's out, he's out jogging. He does this every day. He's out jogging. Let's cut him off. Stand up on the back of the truck. Just like, just like running deer. Kenyatta in Los Angeles. You wanted to comment on this? Uh, it's probably a pretty good guess, Mr. Hartman. However, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time talking about the specifics of the Ahmad Aubrey lynching because those details are readily available. What I want to do is reach out to you and your audience and tell you that every time this happens, you and I have had conversations after events like this in Ferguson, Missouri. We've talked about Walter Scott, Freddie Gray, Trayvon Martin, Sandra Bland, some guy named Oscar, I forget his last name, John, Joshua Brown. Never are these people's last names Kowalski or Steinberg or Chong or Singh or Fukushima or rarely a Gomez. So let's cut the BS here. Let's cut mm-hmm. it. Every time we focus on one of these issues, we then take away our focus as a nation from the greater issue. And that is why this happens to these people constantly over and over again. And you said it in your last segment. You said until speaking about COVID-19, until it, quote unquote, moves into white America and until white Americans see what we saw here in Southern California five years ago, where a CHP officer, 250 pounds with gloved hands in broad daylight, straddled a black woman who was mentally ill, unarmed, not threatening, walking on the freeway, he beat that woman to a bloody pulp. And until white Americans can get that image and that reality into their mind, let's quit playing this game. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. Thank you. Thank you, Kenya. George Barnhill, the, the district attorney who saw no grounds for arrest in the killing of Ahmad Arbery, his previous gig, I mean, you know, he's been a prosecutor since 1960-something, 1983, excuse me, since 1983. His previous gig was prosecuting a woman named Olivia Pearson. She was a 58-year-old black activist and city commissioner in a small town in Georgia, Douglas, Georgia. And she showed a young first-time black voter how to use a voting machine when the woman didn't know how, back in October of 2012. And for that, Governor Kemp, this was back when Brian Kemp was fixing to run against Stacey Abrams, and he was trying to promote this idea that black people are committing voter fraud left and right. He wanted to throw this young woman in jail for help, for, you know, here she is, a city activist and a city commissioner showing a first-time voter how to use a voting machine. He, th- technically, that's illegal. Right? You provide them with instructions, but you don't walk up to the machine and show them how. Technically, that's illegal. He wanted her to go to jail for 15 years. Prison. 15 years in prison. And the only reason that he didn't succeed, this went to trial. Miss Pearson actually was tried by, the, by Barnhill, by this prosecutor who wanted to let off these two who killed Mr. Arbery, Greg McMichael and Travis McMichael. He wanted her to go to jail for 15 years, to prison for 15 years. It got to court. It was a jury trial, and it ended in a mistrial because one juror, a young black woman named Lanisha Armour, refused to go along with the case. She said it was torture 
disagreeing with the rest of the jury. Amazing. Amazing. Les in Tacoma, Washington. Hey, Les, what's up? Okay, it has to be more than running 2.23 miles and placing Black Lives Matter signs in their yard. You talk about the disparities of COVID-19 outcomes by race, but fail to include that the system of white supremacy affects so many facets of those dying from COVID-19. So with the history of lynchings in America and with the white supremacist administration in the office of the presidency, what are white folks and those who benefit from the construct of whiteness doing or willing to do to confront the fervor being instigated by 46 minus one and the Republicans? Well, that's the question, Les. I mean, you know, that that is that is the big question is, is will white America wake the hell up and do something about this? And, you know, and, and I got to tell you, over the last 30 years or, or thereabouts, I mean, going back to, uh, you know, can't can't uh, can't we all uh, just, you know, be nice to each get other? Along. The, yeah. yeah. Can't we all Rodney just get King. along? Excuse me. Yeah, Rodney, all the way back to that. I mean, that was, I think, probably one of the earlier, although you could argue, you know, the the, the, the Edmund Pettus Bridge should have been a wake-up call for white people in the United States. It's not like there haven't been a whole bunch of of milestones here, right? Um, Right. Marcus Garvey. Yeah, and the the tendency has been to just kind of go back to sleep and go back to sleep and go back to sleep. Doesn't affect me. I'm white. Doesn't affect me. I'm good. And at some point, and I, you know, frankly, I don't think that we've reached that point. And, and, yeah. and, the, and the proof of that is, you know, these, these uh, white guys with swastikas screaming at state police in, in Michigan and in in the, inside the legislature, you know, because God forbid there's a, there's a woman who's a Democrat as governor. And uh, I, I just, I don't think we're there. I, I, you know, and I, it pains me to say it, but I think that most of white America about- is quite happy with their white privilege. Thank you very much. Yeah. How do you feel about breaking down the construct of whiteness? I mean, it's it's become such a, a easy solution for, you know, white supremacy to stay in power by painting us all as red, black, brown. I'm black because you are white, you know, and, but see that mm-hmm. whiteness, we, until we break that down, we, you know, you're English, you're Italian, you're Irish, and they did that purposely to increase whiteness presence in America. You know, if there's 52 million African Americans in America, if there's 32 million Irish and 32 million Germans, we're not minorities. You know, we're all in this together. So how would you break it down, Les, real quickly, please? I would start in curriculum in schools with teaching our young folks that, you know, we're more than just color-coded society. We are culture. We are contributing to our humanity, every person on this earth. And it's not to do with whiteness or blackness or redness or... Brilliant. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Sharice in Polsbo, Washington. Hey, Sharice, what's up? Hi, Tom. I called a couple weeks ago and asked why the stimulus checks weren't just sent out by the IRS since the IRS knows everybody's wage, everybody's salary, blah, 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 and they could just send them out. And you said, well, the banks get 5%, and this is how other countries are doing it because it's so efficient. Well, I was wondering why they don't do the same thing with SNAP. For everyone who qualified for one of those stimulus checks, why aren't they just sending food stamps out to everyone so they can shop at the grocery stores and not spend three miles in a food bank? You know what I mean? It's so backward. It would keep the flow going, the farmer's food to the stores, the stores would be busy, people wouldn't be in food banks, it wouldn't depend on donations. And it's so simple to just expand that program and everyone who received a check now gets this food stamp bump. We are living in a country right now, Cherise, where when a young man turns 18, the federal government immediately knows it and notifies him that he has to register for the draft. We're living in a country, federal government pretty much knows what's going on, but they can't get a stimulus check to everybody. They can't get food stamps to people. They can't get health care to people. I mean, you know, this is this is willful blind. You know, they can't 
<laughs> they can't make sure that people are registered to vote. When everybody turns 18, uh, women are not eligible for the draft yet, but when everybody turns 18, boom, the men get a draft notice. Why don't they get a registration, you know, a voter registration notice? You're absolutely right. We have the systems to do this. And frankly, I think the systems are even bigger than the IRS that could be doing this. And yet we choose yeah. not to do it because it proves some political benefit to the Republican Party not to have people have benefits, to keep people hungry, to keep people frightened, to keep people unemployed. Cherie, spot on. Spot on. Thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. And most people in America are not hearing the other side of the story, to paraphrase Paul Harvey. They don't know what's really going on from a progressive perspective. So if you want to spread democracy and you want to spread some actual news, in some cases good news, pick one person today who you're going to turn on to progressive media. You're going to awaken somebody. Please, tag your it. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 